Welcome to another episode of the Trees and Lines podcast, in which we have been speaking with thought leaders from throughout the industry. My co-host Tej and I are pleased to welcome Lou Payne this week. Lou is the manager of the Rights of Way Environmental Services for the New York Power Authority, and I believe he has one of the best transmission vegetation management programs in the country. In this episode, we will be discussing some of the innovative technology and the new research that's going on at the Power Authority. So I hope you'll listen in and enjoy. Well, Lou, I want to thank you for being willing to join us today. Always a pleasure to spend time with Lou Payne. Uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Uh, glad you get a chance to meet Tej. Uh, be interested in seeing some of the questions he has for you. Pleasure meeting you. Yes, thank you. And uh, Phil, it's always a pleasure to uh, catch up with you. So, Lou, you have one of those names that I think uh, most of our listeners will have heard. But, uh, you know, before we get started, why don't you just give us a quick rundown of Lou Payne and uh, your program there at New York Power Authority. Okay. Um, yeah, my name's Lou Payne. I'm the right-of-way manager uh, with the New York Power Authority. So I manage a uh, transmission system here. Uh, the New York Power Authority is just a transmission company. We have 1,400 miles of transmission right-of-way, which equates out to about 23,000 acres. Um, I've been here at the Power Authority uh, going on 19 years. Been in the industry probably 35, 36 years, somewhere in there. I start to lose track of those years uh, after a period of time. So, uh, um you know, we've been uh, up here in New York State. Uh, we practice uh, integrated vegetation management, um, you know, and we've developed uh, a system here. We've had it in place for well over 20 years. And uh, so we have uh, a well-established right-of-ways, and uh, uh, and that's what Phil and I always get to talk about all the time. So uh, so that's just, a, I guess, a little bit about me. So, Tej, I'll just let you know that, you know, I have a, Privilege of going around and visiting a lot of different programs, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but in terms of integrated vegetation management, I think Lou's got the program that people should be aiming for. Uh, he really sets a new standard. No, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and part of that is twenty years. You know, people sometimes are skeptical. Does uh, IVM really produce the results? And uh, Lou, I think you can speak to that just a little bit, can't you? Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's something that doesn't happen overnight for sure. And, uh, you know, like Phil said, you know, it's 20 years, it's 20 years in the making and, and it evolves over time. Um, you know, there's no cookie cutter approach to this. Uh, but one thing I think that I've put in place early on was I developed a, a long range system-wide vegetation management plan because uh, when you when you think about your you know managing these these right-of-way corridors or managing these uh, power line corridors you know you got to look at the business model what's the business model of those power lines that are in the air you know they're built to last 50 to 100 years so you know you need to have a vegetation program that's going to carry you that distance and uh, so you can't have a veg program that's going to carry you a year or two or one cycle or, you know, very short term. You got to start thinking long term. 
And that's what we were taught, right? We were taught that in school, um, you know, going to forestry school, looking at, at, at how to manage forests. We were looking long-term. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, we touch utilities, you know, across the U.S. and every footprint is different. Every state is different. Rules and regulations, the, the risks. In, in New York specifically, like what are some of the, or at least in your footprint, what are some of the the challenges that are unique to what you see that, you know, you have to be thoughtful of? Well, with New York, um, probably as a lot of people know, uh, New York is very regulated. It seems like we, I think New York and California compete, right? To, to see who can have the most regulations. So, um, or if one puts one in place, the other one's got to outdo it, right? So, uh, but we do we do have uh, a series of challenges with with regulations out there. Now, the New York Power Authority is a state owned utility, um, but even though we're a state owned utility, we still have to comply with the regulations out there. <clears throat> so, um, with that, there's there's protections of wetlands out there. There's there's a lot of herbicide regulations as well. Um, you know, herbicides are approved by the EPA for use out there, but then they've got to go through a whole New York State uh, section as well and have to be approved by New York State for use in, in the state. So um, there's herbicides out there that other utilities are using that I'm not allowed to use because they're not approved for use in New York. Um, <clears throat> New York also has uh, their Department of Public Service, which puts together the the regulations for the utilities, and they specify that the investor owns uh, have to have on their transmission system this long-range system-wide vegetation management plan. Being a state agency, we're exempt from that, but we voluntarily comply. So, you know, so we have, like I said, we've developed that long-range plan. Um, you know, we've we've we taken steps to ensure that we're in compliance with with other regulations such as wetlands and and other permitting issues that we need out there to do our program and to ensure that we're using the right products out there so okay oh that's that's interesting who's the one that talks frequently about uh, his strategy being managing vegetation with vegetation so oh, ex- less, explain that. Less human inputs every cycle. Oh, is is that is that uh, how much technology do you do you utilize, Lou? Or is this like a more traditional sort of plan that you implement? No, we 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 do utilize technology. Back in about ninety eight, we we started utilizing GIS, and is as our core management tool for our veg program. So, you know, with GIS, we can capture multiple layers out there, um, from these regulatory layers that we talked about to landowner layers to uh, putting in, uh, you know, like planning profiles and easement uh, layers in there. And then what we've done is since the early days is we do what we call a vegetation inventory. So it's it's boots on the ground, uh, folks walking the right of way, and they're they're classifying land use types, cover types, looking at the compatible vegetation, the non compatible vegetation, and the densities and the heights, and then. Uh, prescribing treatments. So they snap the polygons into the GIS program. Then that's, that's moved forward to our veg 
maintenance crews. So they, you know, we, we've asked them to have laptops or tablets in the field so that we can provide them that data. So it's, it's no longer paper, you know, so we're all digital out there. So they're, they're using these, these tablets to see what the, these work polygons are. They go out and perform the work and then they put their data in the treatment data. So they record the herbicide use, the mixes that they're using, the dates that it's being done, you know, the weather conditions, et cetera, and, and putting that in there. So we're capturing that at the same time. And then we're able to use that for, for what we call reverse invoicing. So once we know those polygons have been completed and are checked off by my forestry staff, then, then my veg management's home office can go in and, and pull out the ones that are complete and approved and, and bill for those. Um, so we do use a lot of technology out there. Um, but to get to, to Phil's point about managing vegetation with vegetation, um, you know, someday I got to get that T-shirt made up, Phil. And, uh, you know, and uh, but we're, you know, I look at this as, you know, we're land managers out here. We're not, we're, we're beyond that, that aspect of trees and wires. Okay, so I'm managing that compatible biodiverse ecosystem out there. And so by doing that, you know, we prescribe those treatments, we go out and we target those non-compatibles. And by encouraging the compatible vegetation or that biological control out there, it's, it's given me that that bigger step forward um, where I don't have to use a lot of herbicides. I don't have to, you know, send crews in to cut big stuff down because I'm letting that early successional plant community establish out there and hold the site and compete for those site resources. And, and that's what I'm managing for. Last time I was there, it seemed like you were uh, almost uh managing more about the compatibles than the incompatibles, um, whether it was. Yeah, you're, you're right, Phil. It, it's gotten to that point where um, in a lot of instances out there, my compatibles are so thick and so dense that now my real concern is that they're camouflaging or hiding the non-compatibles out there and that my guys aren't finding them. And when you have that, that canopy layer out there, uh, that could be at say 15 feet high of compatible shrubs and I miss an ash tree or a maple tree and it's hiding underneath that canopy and then all of a sudden it breaks canopy then it shoots up fast and so now it could be a serious problem for me so what I've had to do is change up a little bit so what we did is we said let's let's make access easier in these this this compatible thick compatible vegetation and help keep those escapes out of there so we started mowing real narrow strips five to ten foot wide strips dead under the conductors and so if i have a tower situation with three conductors in a row i'll have three strips down the right of way now my crews can walk or gain access easier out there the escapes, if they happen, won't be dead under the conductors, and they should be able to, to penetrate and get into the compatibles a lot easier. Let's say I, I I dropped you in California, okay? I know you've been a lifelong New Yorker. <laughs> it, 
would this strategy, which is so thoughtful and um, I love the sort of ideology of it, is it applicable to all footprints and with all the different types of risk, like putting aside regulation and what PUC is required, all that stuff? I mean, just the natural, you've got wildfires, you've got time pressure, you've got intensity of storm. It is what you're doing, it, can it be applied across the board or is it just work specifically very well for the New York footprint? I would say this can be applied across the board. Um, you know, you, you've got to have a true understanding of, of, you know, the principles of integrated vegetation management. And then you've got to have a real understanding of what your plant communities are, where you're at. I mean, think about New York state. Um, you know, we're, we're a very rich plant community state, you know, so, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of, of compatible vegetation plants out there, you know, and non-compatible. So um, the, the ecosystem's a little different. It's actually changing now, you know, as, you know, uh, you know, the, the heat starts going on more and more in the year or we have more rain. Um, so our growing seasons are changing a little bit in New York. Granted, we don't have the, the, the fire risk that they do in California. That's an, that's another thing that would have to be managed out there. But again, if you're thinking of compatible vegetation, say in, in the Northwest and you get that compatible vegetation growing on your right of way, that's gotta be, you know, if it's green and rich, that has to be, you know, almost like an asbestos uh, realm out there for you because the, the green rich plants aren't going to burn as well as the, the dried down plants, you know, or, or material that's on the ground. So if you can get past, and, and it takes effort, reclamation, it takes, you know, clearing some of that stuff out of there and get the right of way to where you need it. And over time, I think you could get there and, and help mitigate some of that fire risk as well. Integrated vegetation management should be able to be done all across North America. It, it shouldn't matter whether you're down in the south or up in Canada or east or west. Yeah, you're indifferent. Yeah. Okay. The, the power authority is uh, one of eight utilities that have achieved the uh, right-of-way steward accreditation uh, for excellence in IVM. And I'll just say that the group, that eight, is spread all across the country, every uh, region. It's applicable everywhere. Lou, you've been doing it for 20 years, and I think you got an early start probably because of that research that was done uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And you may have been the first one out of the uh, gates practicing IVM. Uh, But I know that you still value research. You know, tell us a couple of the things you've got going now. Yeah, absolutely. A little off the beaten track. Re- research is a, is, a, is a truly valuable tool. And, you know, Phil said I, I may have been uh, early on in some of this. Um, you know, research has been going on in Pennsylvania down at uh, the state game lands through Penn State for like 65 years. It's Bramble and Burns research. And you know, and, and when I look at some of that, going back to the older research, Bramble and Burns were the pioneers, right? 
Dr. Frank Egler was the pioneers. And then the first generation that learned from those guys probably was Phil was probably one of them. And uh, others like, uh, you know, uh, Lynn Grayson and Jim Orr and Dick Miter, Ken Finch, some of those guys. I always look at myself as the second generation that I learned from, you know, that first generation. But that research is critical out here. Because nothing, like I said, nothing really stays the same. And we've got to keep watching and keep keep looking at research. Currently, right now, I have some, some bat research going on. I mean, bat, bats have been hit very hard with white-nose syndrome. So a lot of bats are listed. They're either listed as threatened or endangered. So, And that impacts on how we cut trees and manage some of the edge of our right-of-ways. Um, so I have some bat box research out there trying to look at where the northern long-eared bat utilizes the right-of-way. The northern long-eared bat is a forested bat or a forest bat in does he roost right at the edge or does he roost at 25 or 30 feet into the into the woods from the right-of-way and utilizes the right-of-way for a food source because he's out there collecting insects. Um, so that's, that's one of the, the research areas that I'm looking at. I'm also looking at uh, pollinators. Um, we've got some new construction going on in New York. Uh, more geared towards, you know, the, the, the way the shift is uh, with the electric industry to move away from, you know, carbon fuels and uh, going towards renewables. So we have to upgrade the system in order to carry the new load. So in the, the rebuilds, we've, we've put mats on the ground and they're staying on the ground for up to 12 months. So I'm looking at what kind of impact does those mats on the ground have with insects or pollinators and with the natural seed bank that they're covering over, you know. And uh, so when they start to pull these mats back out, are the pollinators going to be able to come right back? Um, so we're looking we're looking at that. Um, so um, I work a lot with a local university. Uh, the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. I've been working with that group probably for 20 years. And, uh, you know, one thing that they do for me and and a lot of my research is develop what we call fact sheets. And we do this for a couple reasons, but it's, it's primarily a technical transfer of knowledge because a lot of this research is, is done by universities, and when they write papers up, it's pretty deep. It's pretty detailed, and can the guy that's the boots on the ground truly understand what's been researched or looked at? And so we try to bring it to their level by doing these uh, uh, fact sheets, that technical transfer, that knowledge to help them understand why we're doing what we're doing and why we're trying to protect those resources out there and manage that uh, biodiverse habitat. Wow. That's interesting because, you know, so often we leave out the boots on the ground. You know, we yes. want everybody to understand what we're trying to do, but we don't consider that the ones that are actually doing it we don't consider it yeah Yeah. and you and you mentioned technology too one thing another thing that we're looking at right now is is with this new drone technology so we've got some some tests going on right now where we're actually applying herbicides utilizing a drone 
So can we take that drone and go into areas where it's extremely hard to put boots on the ground, whether it's, you know, wet areas or really steep slopes? And can we make the same type of application, that selective type of application with that drone? And so we've we've got some demos going on right now doing that. Yeah. Here's a, here's a question for you. There's, and this is perhaps a, a little uninformed, but like you're dealing with like all different types of vegetation. There's a lot of variables, right. Um, that could affect grow patterns and a lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of compatible, non-compatible. How are you able to like conclusively sort of draw, you know, the relationships when something happens or there's an outcome or, you know, that, yes, we think it's because of this, this, and this, because it's just, there's just a huge amount of land. There's all these different species. They're doing different things. You know, the, the tracking of the data, the, the measuring of the data, the, the quality of the data, like how are, data seems to be at the center of a lot of what you're doing in order to validate what comes next or what, what proved out. How are you able to ensure that that is exactly what you expect in back testing and all that stuff. You know, like you said, we've we've collected a lot of data over time and and we've seen those changes. Um so we've we've we have looked at a lot of the data. We're not sure that we're capturing that data right and looking at it right. So we've raised that question. So with with uh, the state university uh college of environmental science and forestry, one of the tasks that I've given them this year is pull my data. Take my data and you guys as the experts on dealing with that kind of stuff. Tell me what we need to look at in here. You know, we've seen uh, the the uh, herbicide rates decrease over time as a result of what we're doing out there. We've seen the densities of my compatible vegetation increase over time. Um, but maybe there's something else that we're missing. And so I'm asking, you know, those professionals to look at that data and mine it and say, you know, hey, this is what we're garnering from that. Um, You know, and at the same time, uh, I've put together in in my veg inventory, I've changed that up over time. And last year, I actually added what they call a pollinator scorecard. And it's, and it's through the Rights of Ways Habitat Working Group, and it's a Tier 3. They have three levels, and Tier 3 is the, the, the one that collects the most data. And I said with my veg inventory crew, I said, I want you guys to do this, and I want you to do it three times per day while you're out there doing this inventory. So you make a stop mid-morning, at noon, and mid-afternoon, and do the scorecard. Because what I want to do is with the scorecard, it, it, it gives you a ranking number on how valuable is that particular site in regards to pollinators. So it's looking at, you know, the flowering resources. It's looking at what's in bloom, what's not. It's looking at, you know, what type of invasive species are there. It's looking at even what pollinators may be there and the surrounding habitat. And so last year, I, I had almost 300 of these sites uh, captured. And I'm, again, on another quarter of my system doing inventory right now. So when I get across my whole system, I'm looking to have close to 11 to 1,200 of these pollinator scorecard sites. 
and that'll be more data that I can look at and uh, and look at how it's being ranked out there. I don't know what NIPA's budget is, right, for IBM. Well, let's just say I doubled it. You now have twice the money to work with. You know, where do you where do you invest that all this extra capital and you know, would it make uh, a material impact in terms of what you're trying to do, the speed in which you're trying to do it? Like, how would you spend that that additional capital to make your program much more effective? Well, I think that's every veg manager's dream, right? To, <laughs> I'm Santa Claus. The I'm, budget, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the veg Santa Claus. Yeah. So, um, one, I think my my danger tree program, I would I would really tighten that down. Um, I currently do LIDAR on a quarter of my system every year. If I had the money, I wouldn't really mind doing LIDAR on my whole system every year. Um, because it's, it's that snapshot in time. And so when I do a quarter of the system, I only have it for four years. So if I could get it every year, I could really see and track changes, uh, with LIDAR that way. I probably would utilize some of it again, put a bunch of it into research uh, to keep expanding my research and, and, and into training. Um, you know, we, we try to do as much training as we can with our guys to keep them focused out here. Um, but I think I would certainly put more of it into training as well. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's, that's great. A lot of buckets. Okay. Interesting. So, Lou, you have sort of a unique background experience in the company in NIPA, uh, probably in the state as well. And I know you're an advocate, you know, for speaking up, whether it's to your peers at the utility. Um, you're the subject matter expert. Can you share the opportunities you've had and what you suggest to others? Yes, uh, certainly. Um, and Phil brings up a good point. When when I first went through the right-of-way stewardship accreditation, you know, I uh, it gave me an opportunity to bring guys in, and Phil was one of them. Phil and Nelson Money, uh, you know, the who we've we've lost. Uh, but both those guys came in and, and uh, looked my program over, and and one of the key things that they told me was, "You have a great program here, and you got to tell your story." Okay, and with that, it it gave me that push. It gave me the push that I really needed to get out to the industry and start talking. And, you know, what I found in my career is you've got to get a seat at the table. You know, you can't, you can't sit back, you know, whether, whether it's internal or whether it's external, but you can't sit back and let somebody else make the decisions for you. So you've got to get that seat at the table so you can at least talk about it, right? I've, I've joined different organizations. We have one here in New York State that's called ENI. It's the Environmental Energy Alliance of New York. <clears throat> so it's, it's, a, it's a group of utilities, and it's typically uh, some subcommittees. So as, as a subcommittee from, for transmission distribution or land use, I sit on those subcommittees so that I can have that seat at the table to help and understand what the other utilities are facing and we can work together to solve it. I, I chair a, a category six pesticide training committee on that. There's, there's utility members, there's, there's uh, 
chemical company members. There's other shareholders on there from DOT to even the regulators are on there so that I can have that seat at that table too and talk with them. Um, I've joined other groups like EPRI and CIATI and uh, the, the North American Transmission Forum uh, to ensure that I can, I can have a voice there as well. Um, but it's, it's and, and internally too. Um, <clears throat> one thing I found internally is if I can get an ally internally that understands my program and I pick the right ones, that voice can go a lot further than what I can take it. And a prime example is a sustainability group. You know, almost every utility has a sustainability group. And the sustainability people where that group typically has the ear of the CEO. And so if I can get the sustainability people to understand my program and the benefits what my program can bring to sustainability in regards to ESGs or, you know, some of their reporting targets with biodiversity, now they're talking to the CEO. Now my program gets a little bit of a lift, right, or a little better leverage. And maybe I get some of that funding, that extra funding that I normally wouldn't get because now it's being driven by sustainability. Yeah. Wow. That's very, very insightful. Very insightful. Wow. Lou, I'm learning a lot here today. This is great. <laughs> so does uh, Veg Management have any metrics that roll up into your sustainability goals? We do. I mean, obviously, we have biodiversity metrics. Um where we're, I'm, I'm actually partnered with uh, Davy Resource Group uh, working on a, a kind of a sustainability or ESG uh, program where we can measure different targets that we, we have going on out on the right of way. You know, and so we're looking at, you know, beyond that biodiversity aspect, but we're, we started breaking apart what, what our operations are and, and what's the footprint of the equipment that we have out there? And can we make some changes there to help with that? And which we've done. I mean, we've, I've, I've asked my vendors to put uh, an electric chainsaw on each crew out there. I have an electric UTV out there. Uh, I have one internally out there that we're looking at as well to see how that works. Um, you know, and then part of that, ESG targets, the, 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 the social aspect is dealing with landowners, you know, and, and we have quite a, uh, uh, a program to do that. You know, we do a lot of landowner notifications. Um, we have a real estate group that gets out and talks to landowners. Um, you know, so we try to have that interface with them as well. So, but we're looking at it very hard. We, we've been working with sustainab- our sustainability group to see what, what metrics they report on, whether it's the, you know, the Dow Jones or the, the GRIs or the SASB metrics, you know, to see what they have there that we can, we can get credit for, the, you know, as part of their targets. Do you think eventually that a vegetation IBM will be rolled up into sustainability like uh, in in the various utilities, like it'll eventually all become one sort of core group. Uh, possibly, you know, those sustainability groups have a lot of other responsibilities out there. You know that they're they're dealing with corporate wide. You know, from you know waste handling to 
uh, water issues and, and a whole lot of different issues that are beyond what we typically do on the right of way. Um, but as long as we're having that exchange, that conversation, um, and educating them so that they know what we're doing out there, you know, and, and opening their eyes, you know, I think we'll at least be partners. Where are you uh, specifically? Like, where do you live in, uh, in New York? I pretty much central New York. Uh, so I live, I live, uh, just, uh, south of the Adirondack park, uh, mm. right in near the, the small city of Utica and Utica is kind of midway between Syracuse and Albany. Okay. Um, but we have, I mean, like I said, we have 1400 miles here at the power authority. So I have three regions. I have one region down yeah. in the Catskills, one way up in Messina, way up at the North end. And then one right here that's central that runs all the way out West to Niagara Falls. All the all the fancy locations. I like it. That's right. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I lived in I lived in New York for a bunch of years, New York City, and uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't spend as much time um, in upstate and some of these other areas that are beautiful. Like, I mean, friends of mine. I'm Canadian, so um, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't spend more time uh, in those areas. But um, I've heard nothing but like just green and beautiful. We usually uh, kind of distinguish between us and and the folks down in New York City. So we we yeah, always oh, say yeah. we're from we're from upstate New York. You know, yeah, we're upstate. Yeah, no, I so. know. Yeah, I've, I've heard the clarification. So our headquarters is down in uh, White Plains, uh, which is just outside of New York City. So that's where our headquarters is. So part of what we try to do with these is uh, a little. F- forward-looking, you know, so do you see any trends we haven't talked about or, or is there anything you said you're second generation, anything you want to share with those people that will make up the third generation? Yeah. Um, you know, and I've been doing that for some time, Phil is and and I'm not even sure it's just the third generation, the fourth generation may be in here. And, and I do believe it is. I think there's, there's, uh, you know, some of the, the, the younger folks getting into the, to the business are probably what I would consider fourth generation, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and they bring a lot to the table. And, uh, you know, I've always said, you know, as, as I'm sitting in my, my seat right now is to, to start looking at what 15 year old kids are doing today, because in 10 years they're going to be our next workforce, right? So they're not going to be the ones that are going to use desktop computers and they probably aren't even going to use laptop computers, you know? So if you want to see where technology is going, start watching 15 year old kids out there, you know, because they're the ones that are going to bring that new technology to the table, you know, and, and, you know, and IVM has, has evolved over time. I mean, obviously when the first power line got put in the air, you know, there had to be vegetation management out there, right? So because trees were growing and they got right in the wire. So it was really focused with safety reliability, you know, and then when we got into, say, the 60s and 70s, you know, it started, the whole environmental movement started to happen. That was the Rachel Carson days. You know, Rachel Carson got involved. Uh, Frank Agler was was very instrumental with Ra- Rachel Carson. And, and Rachel Carson, if you read her book, Silent Spring, you'll see that she really did understand integrated vegetation management. Because she spelled out that, you know, as utility veg managers or roadside managers, that you didn't need to clear all the vegetation out there. You really only needed to clear what was an issue for you. 
and you could leave all the other vegetation behind. So she knew that back then. You know, and as we started moving into the 80s and the 90s, you know, there was some new herbicides out there. Um, you know, some standards started to show up. And IVM really became a term because early on it really wasn't there. You know, it was like integrated pest management or just utility vegetation management. And then you get into the 2000s to now, um, you know, it got codified into standards. You've got the ANSI standards, the ANSI A300s. But what happened in 2003 was the blackout, right? <clears throat> the big northeast blackout. And what happened with that is a lot of utilities took IVM and threw it out the door because they said, we're not going to be the next utility that, that causes a blackout. So we got to get out there. We got to clear all the vegetation, mow it all down, spray it all, get rid of it all. You know, so they threw IVM out the door. So they really had to restart. So a lot of utilities are back in that that area right now where they're they're restarting their programs and trying to get that IVM component back in place and uh, you know but we're you know like I said we're codified into standards sustainability all of a sudden popped up is is the big buzzword even though we talked about it for years out there you know that what we're practicing with IVM is a sustainable approach you know but that's you know, becoming the buzzword, you know, pollinators right now is another buzzword. And, you know, and I, you know, there's going to be more of that happening. And I think there's going to be a lot more focus on protecting species out there than, than, and, and I believe, I truly believe it's going on, but now it's going to get recognized more and more, you know, as, as we start taking a closer look moving forward, because regulations again are coming down about protecting species. Prime example that's coming up is monarch butterflies, you know, monarch butterflies, you know, were put before the fish and wildlife service to be listed. And they said it was warranted, but precluded. So it's common, you know, the monarch butterfly populations, you know, in, in, you know, in distress right now. And so that listing is coming. But what we're doing out there with this, you know, managing vegetation with vegetation approach, you know, keeping that compatible plant community out there, you know, we're creating that habitat for these pollinators, including monarch butterflies. You know, so we were, we found ways that we can get credit for that. You know, and we can work with that to help show the regulators that, you know, we're not out there destroying habitat. We're not out there, you know, taking taking these these insects or these other animals out there. So and, you know, there's there's a lot of new stuff coming. I mean, look at the drones, the drone technology and where that's been going, you know, so. And, and I've got, you know, one of my young foresters here, he's, he's a drone pilot. He's very instrumental in driving this herbicide demo, you know, and so they have that focus. They, you know, and uh, to get away from just that kind of that old school to, to look at how, how the new approach can work out here. You seem like you're professionally open. You can embrace uh, change and, and a new way of thinking. Um, but from my perspective, as somebody that did not grow up in this industry, this sector, and we've been doing this podcast now, chatting with very different perspectives from John Goodfella to yourself to Pam Rauch, she runs you know external affairs for, for Nextera. It's pretty cool to see that everybody has kind of carved out their own 
sort of niche and and has a philosophy and is executing that philosophy, even though it all sort of fits within this story. There's there's these nuances and these differences that are fascinating to hear. So it's it's, it's great. You love hearing your perspective. It's been pretty interesting. One thing that the Power Authority did a, f- a couple years ago was we became the first utility that's ISO 55001 certified. And what that did for me as a veg manager is it is it had my company take a different look at what these right-of-way corridors are. So instead of looking at veg management as a liability, these corridors are now looked at as an asset. And as an asset, now the, the company takes a completely different focus and says, as an asset, we got to maintain it out there, right? So we, we build in, you know, preventative maintenance uh, tools in our in our work management system, you know, and it, and it really helps, and it's been a real plus for us, and it's helped get the money or the budget that we need out there, you know, because we 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 as veg managers we have to look above and beyond compliance, you know, and above and beyond just safety and reliability, because there's a whole lot more going on out there that we're responsible for, and so we have to look beyond that. And, you know, and that's getting, again, that seat at the table. You know, once this became an asset, now I got another seat at another table, you know, to start talking about how am I going to manage this asset. Phil and I are going to have to come pay you a visit and uh, <laughs> have, some, have some dinner and carry this conversation on. It's It's been a good one. I just have two quick questions for you, Lou. Okay. Uh, who holds the applicant? Your guy is the pilot. He's not an applicator. Who holds the applicator license when you use a drone to apply herbicide? And the second I'll ask you is uh, my follow-up question. I saw you're on the agenda at Trees and Utilities. What's your topic? Okay. Um, the first one, the, the, the applicator. This, this, is, this was a hurdle we had here in New York State because an aerial applicator has to have a Category 11 license, a right-of-way utility applicator has to have a 6a license okay now the drone applicator if he's an aerial applicator so he would be the the category 11 applicator i could be the category 6a applicator because i'm making the recommendations to him okay and telling him specifically what i want sprayed and how i want it sprayed and the chemicals i want used so that's how New York lets us get around it. But it, it was a little tricky and, uh, you know, to, to, to get there and getting the category 11 is, is, is hard because category 11 is really designed for fixed wing aircraft and helicopters. Okay. So how does a drone applicator go get certified? He, had, he has to have 12 hours of training before he can test out to become a category 11 applicator. You know, so and these guys have they've they've gone to these these big meetings with uh, guys that fly fixed wings and helicopters doing, you know, crop dusting and other applications so that they could get their applicators license. But a whole lot of that stuff really doesn't apply to a guy flying a drone. Regulation hasn't caught up yet. Not yet. Uh, Phil, you asked me what I'm presenting at Trees and Utilities. So my my presentation is on long-range vegetation management plan. What is this? And, uh, you know, so I found, you know, 
being out in the, you know, in the industry, talking to folks across North America about this, vegetation managers, I'm realizing and finding out that a lot of them do not have this long-range vegetation management plan in place. They don't have that holistic approach or that even that holistic view. And uh, so I want to bring that to the table uh, and, and share my knowledge in that regards with them and get them thinking you know, that business model, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the wires, the, the poles and the wires are built the last 50 to 100 years. Is your vegetation management program going to get you there? Lou, you know, I really appreciate your taking the time. I know you're busy, and uh, but you really uh, have provided a lot of us, a lot of really interesting things for us to think about. We really covered a wide range of topics. So all I can say, Lou, is thank you and keep telling the story. Well, thank you, guys. I enjoyed this very much. Yeah, us too. We'll uh, we'll grab dinner soon in New York. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Trees and Lines, sponsored by Iapetus Holdings, LLC. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or if you have ideas for future episodes, please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. Dot com.